At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Bernie and socialism. Of course, Trump declared in his State of the Union speech, America will never become a socialist country. And of course, that only makes it seem like maybe it will. Bernie gave an important speech on socialism last week, and our John Nichols spoke with him about it beforehand. He'll explain later in the show. Also, one of the great progressive victories last November, along with the midterm elections, was the vote in Florida to restore voting rights to people who had been convicted of felonies and served their sentences. Felon enfranchisement, we called it. And we also called it one of the greatest victories for voting rights in decades. 1.4 million people were going to get back their right to vote. But the voting rights news from Florida since then has not been so good. Sasha Abramsky will explain. First up, Elizabeth Warren and the upcoming Democratic Party presidential debates. For comment, we turn to Katrina Vandenhuvel. Of course, she's publisher and now editorial director of The Nation magazine. She also writes a weekly column for The Washington Post. Her articles have also appeared in The New York Times, The L.A. Times, The Boston Globe, and other places. And she's the author of several books, most recently The Change I Believe In. She's a frequent commentator for ABC, MSNBC, CNN, Democracy Now!, and others. Katrina, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, Elizabeth Warren is third in the Democratic polls after Biden and Bernie, and she seems to be the clear leader in what we call the ideas primary. I love that you note the ideas primary, because I think... This primary, we focus on, you know, the 23 running, how many, the passel of people. And, you know, there, there's just uh, ideas get too little attention in our politics, right? The talking heads focus on personality, money, campaign tactics, and, of course, polling numbers. But Elizabeth Warren and, to a large extent, Bernie Sanders and a few others in this field are upending that kind of conventional wisdom. 
The interesting thing about her proposals is that they don't focus on Donald Trump. They don't say we need to go back to the world before Trump. Instead, they address problems that began long before Trump took office. What do you consider her most important ideas and proposals? I don't single out a single, you know, a single plan Warren has. I love this meme, you know, the campaign slogan, quote, I have a plan for that. I first saw a woman wearing that T-shirt and stopped cold to look at it. I think what she's done, Warren, has found not only uh, the ability to effectively connect her ideas, her proposals, well thought out, well crafted, to her own personal experiences. For example, the threat of losing her house as a child to her struggle to find affordable childcare. But what, you know, what really distinguishes her, uh, John, I think, is her ideas add up to a kind of bold, coherent vision. And as you said, it's not about Trump. You know, Joe Biden has calculated that it is about Trump and this sort of existential threat Trump poses to our country, which is, you know, real. But I think people want to see and hear what lies beyond, and she's laying it out. So let me just let our listeners know you're speaking to us from a midtown high above 8th Avenue where there seem to be sirens going on right now. There are sirens every motion and moment in New York City. Let me ask specifically about Bernie. Warren, you know, had this uh, has proposed a $2 trillion investment in clean energy you mentioned her universal child care program. She's got a plan to cancel the student debt and pay for all of this with a wealth tax on the richest one-tenth of one percent of Americans. And I would simply add the other innovative uh, idea that she's put forward and it's well thought out and it's a rising idea in these times is breaking up big tech, break, you know, the yes. revival of antitrust. Where's Bernie in the ideas primary? Bernie, I think is out there with bolder proposals for public education, his Thurgood Marshall education plan. And on Medicare for All, John, which is a critical idea whose time has come, his is much cleaner, whereas I think Warren and some of the others who've signed on and co-sponsored are a little warier of moving as quickly as he would. So in that sense, I think he leads the pack in the ideas primary in that arena, If I could pivot back to the nation for a moment. Sure. You know, the nation at its best puts new ideas and issues on the national agenda years, often decades, before the mainstream press discovers them or political figures discover them. I mean, we were writing about the Green New Deal in the 80s, and uh, we've been for Medicare for All, glad it's now being called that, not single payer, for decades, as you know, John. So I think there's a sense of these ideas whose time have come, we played a role in seeding these ideas. So what next? I think the, you know, the idea of being bolder, thinking anew, is a, cha- a challenge for, for the nation. Of course, a lot of the pundits tell us that ideas and proposals don't get people elected, that likability is the most important factor in what they also call electability. And the pundits tell us Biden is more likable, which is why he's the front runner. What do you say to the argument that Elizabeth Warren is not likable enough to win? Well, she certainly, since she's laid out idea after idea, week after week, she's clearly resonating with voters, John. I mean, she did get off to a bad start with the way she challenged Trump's toxic Pocahontas narrative. 
but she's gained in the polls and earned respect from people Democrats lost either to Trump or to apathy in 2016. But I think she, again, has been able to connect with people and connect her proposals, her ideas to people's experiences, her own experiences. And I think that's very powerful. Yeah. And Bernie, you know, in 2016, he electrified voters, John, not because of his likability or electability, <laughs> but because he offered an agenda for fundamental change. It's an interesting moment where you have, as someone said, Elizabeth Warren is the candidate. I think it's too, it's, it's too simple. But of regulation, Sanders is the candidate of revolution. Let me just add on the, on the likability uh, question, uh, most of the polls right now show that Elizabeth Warren would beat Trump. Bernie would beat him by a bigger margin, the polls. I think say. that, no, that's right. I mean, I do worry about the polls, though, John, because, well, first of all, they're snapshots, right? They're yes. moving snapshots. Yes. It's so early. And we're, we're talking, let's, let's remember, we're talking a week out from the first set of debates. And I do think those will be formative in their own way. And then you have set of debates in July and again in September. May I make a plea for shortening U.S. campaigns? <laughs> <laughs> John Nichols, my colleague, had a good piece up on thenation.com a few days ago about restructuring these debates. Because just imagine you're going to have two nights, right, John? You're going to have June 26th, 27th. You're going to have 10, 10, 10 candidates each night. You're going to have two hours. How much can you really, you know, drill down? I think single issue forums might sound a little boring, but they could be quite interesting if, if done well. And I think it's madness that the party, DNC, kind of quashed the idea of a forum debate on the Green New Deal. You talk about the upcoming Democratic debates in your new column for the Washington Post out this week on Tuesday. You suggest we need to talk about the differences among the Democrats on foreign policy and that the debates would be a good place to start. This is an arena where Elizabeth Warren has not been particularly engaged or active. Who in a Democratic field do you think has taken the lead in raising issues about America in the world? Bernie's made up for what he was criticized for in 2016. As you recall, he just just didn't want to engage foreign policy that much. He talked about regime change, dangers. He was laughed at when he raised climate as a security threat. But I think partly because he's brought on an interesting foreign policy advisor, someone we profiled, Matt Duss. Yes. He's shown that he does have an interest in thinking hard about, you know, against regime change in Venezuela, against this terrible bumbling toward war with Iran. Uh, He favors pulling the troops out from Afghanistan and Syria. And I think he speaks about endless war in important ways. He's also tried to talk about taking on the axis of authoritarianism. I think the cause and effect of that axis needs to be thought through a little. It could be a slippery slope into a kind of axis of evil crusade. And I, I don't think he believes in that. I do think Tulsi Gabbard, who is controversial her support for Modi needs to be looked at very hard, the uh, leader of India that has just been reelected in a landslide. But she is a forceful opponent of regime change and U.S. intervention. And she's really one of the very few warning about, you know, the tensions, the ever-escalating tensions that leave the U.S. on the brink of nuclear war and calls for averting uh, a new Cold War with Russia. So I, I think she's, you know, found her voice. She's not in the top tier by any measure. But I do write in my column, John, that, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been audacious. She's been bold in uh, domestic policy. And I would, you know, I hope that she'll find 
that same audacity and vision in foreign policy as the campaign continues. And the inevitable question, what about Joe Biden? What about Joe? I think in this country we've defined accountability down. And so you have traipsing across our TV screens every night, people like Bill Kristol and David Frum, these neocons who brought us the axis of evil who took us into Iraq, just because they're never Trumpers. With Biden, I think he's gotten it wrong on central questions. This is all the while, well, he's hailed for his extensive foreign policy experience. But, you know, his record is full of mistakes on almost every big foreign policy question. He favored NAFTA. Uh, He voted for the catastrophic invasion of Iraq. He's moving. He now labels his vote on Iraq as a mistake. He's slowly adjusted his views on trade and globalization. But, you know, I think... The mainstream media, John, is often too kind in a kind of con- conventional wisdom, unwisdom way, writing off errors while continuing to dismiss those outside the consensus who got it right. And I found, just if I could, on the media front, Please. I mean, the New, York, the New York Times, the interview with, they did with Bernie Sanders a couple weeks ago, you remember that? I mean, they treated his opposition to Reagan's contra war against Nicaragua in the 80s as something almost seditious. I mean, that was a brutal, covert, illegal war, eventually shut down by Congress, and I think he's to be commended. Last topic, this week you stepped down as editor of The Nation. You remain as publisher with the new job, editorial director. Looking back at the 25 years you've been editor and the coming years, what's the role of The Nation in the world to come? You know, I think we've become a, a digital and print media enterprise. I mean, I'm talking to you on one of our cherished podcasts, right? Start Making Sense. We just launched one a few weeks ago called Next Left, looking at the insurgent, radical, younger forces animating our politics. So I I look forward to a time when the print remains an anchor, but that we are a full-fledged multi-channel media company with uh, print and web and newsletters, podcasts, video, and engaging a new generation, as we already are, John, I, the largest demographic of readers on our website, thenation.com, is 18 to 30 years old. That may not sound so young to some people. It sounds young to me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but I wanted, if I could, could I close out by just reading a few lines from Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. Please. Now working with Cecile Richards and Ai-jen Poo, launching a group called Supermajority to really give women power. She, wrote, she said at the uh, St. Anne's event, St. Anne's is a theater in Brooklyn, and we had an event June 4 where Bill Moyers spoke and Roseanne Cash sang, and she spoke of why the nation is so important to her, to her community. Quote, it is a shell that we can lift up to our ears and hear the waves of power, millions and millions of people participating and sharing their dreams for what this country can and should look like. It is a megaphone, not just for being right, not just for hoping that facts can change the country. But it is a megaphone for the strategies we're waging to become a more human society. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, publisher and editorial director of The Nation, can read her new column at The Washington Post. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about Bernie and socialism. Bernie gave an important speech on the topic last week, and our John Nichols spoke with him about it before that speech. Of course, John is the nation's national affairs correspondent. 
He's also host of the Next Left podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. And he's also written about the senator and socialism in a number of books, including The S-Word, A Short History of an American Tradition, Socialism. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, John. Well, of course, Trump declared in his State of the Union speech, quote, America will never become a socialist country, close quote. And of course, that makes us only think maybe it will. Let's listen to a little of Bernie's big speech on socialism last week. In 1944, FDR proposed an economic bill of rights, but he died a year later and was never able to fulfill that vision. Our job, 75 years later, is to complete what Roosevelt started. And that is why today I am proposing a 21st century economic bill of rights. A bill of rights that establishes once and for all that every American, regardless of his or her income, is entitled to the right to a decent job that pays a living wage. The right to quality health care. The right to a complete education. The right to affordable housing. The right to a clean environment and the right to a secure retirement. Over the course of this election, my campaign has been releasing and will continue to release detailed proposals addressing each of these yet-to-be-realized economic rights. We will also address the attacks that are being launched every day against the civil rights and civil liberties of our people. And let me be absolutely clear. Democratic socialism means to me requiring and achieving political and economic freedom in every community in this country. John Nichols, why do you think Bernie begins here with FDR in 1944? Well, it's a proper place of beginning because 1944 was the year in which the Democratic Party began to wrestle with the future. And what I mean by that is that Roosevelt was a a transitional and, and in many ways transformational president. He took a Democratic Party that was in many senses very conservative, that eight years before Roosevelt became president had nominated a Wall Street lawyer as a candidate for president, and that in many senses uh, was less associated with progressive ideals as regards economic and social justice than uh, many people in the Republican Party. And so in 1944, as he prepared to run for his fourth term as president, Franklin Roosevelt sought to define a post-Depression, post-World War II vision. And that vision suggested that in addition to the political rights, which we well understood and that we had fought for, speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and all the others, that we also needed now to understand economic rights and that those economic rights had to become a part at the very least of the democratic party's vision as it went forward politically. Now, Roosevelt was reelected on this message. 
uh, but he died shortly after his reelection. Truman sought to maintain some elements of it, but not overly successfully. And uh, in many senses, the Democratic Party became uh, better than it had been, but cautious. What Sanders is doing here is twofold. Number one, he is calling the Democratic Party to once again be that bold party, that FDR party, and also suggesting that a democratic socialist vision, now Roosevelt wasn't a democratic socialist, but Roosevelt was someone who borrowed a lot of ideas from democratic socialism and in many ways moved the country uh, in a direction that might reasonably have be imagined to have ended up uh, along a, a European model to say, you know, this is not un-American. This is something that Roosevelt envisioned. This is something that a lot of people have envisioned throughout our history. And this is something that at this point, the Democrats and the broader majority of Americans need to understand and embrace. Well, I'd like to talk about to what extent Bernie's socialist program is different from the rest of the Democratic candidates. For instance, Elizabeth Warren, she calls herself a capitalist, while Bernie, of course, calls himself a socialist. If you look at what they've proposed, instead of what they call themselves, are there significant differences? I think there are some differences, and we can talk about them in a moment. But it's also important to understand, John, that throughout American history, we've had this, this sort of circumstance where some people identified as democratic socialists, others identified as progressive capitalists. They often intersected along the way. What Michael Harrington used to say, Michael Harrington being the great democratic socialist organizer of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, uh, was that you really embraced liberalism and progressivism uh, along the way because it, it did, in many cases, lead toward a democratic socialist vision. With that said, are there differences between Sanders and Warren? Yes, there are. Uh, Sanders has, has taken some significantly bolder stands on foreign policy issues, yes. on international solidarity issues. And it might also be argued that Sanders has a kind of a whole vision, if you will, that he does put under this term democratic socialism. And it goes a bit more aggressively into concepts of universal delivery of services and universal delivery or meeting of needs. It's not to diminish Warren's approach, but simply to suggest that for a very long time, for decades, Bernie Sanders has argued for this kind of whole vision that does use the word socialism. And that's the final thing I would suggest that distinguishes them is this. And it, it's a sense of how you run against Donald Trump if you are the nominee. And let's, let's uh, assert up front that both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would be outstanding nominees against Donald Trump. What Bernie Sanders says is that if you lean into the term democratic socialism, then when Trump calls you a socialist, you say, yeah, and here's what it means. <laughs> Whereas yeah. if you reject the term and if you don't want to use it, then when Trump calls you it, you're sort of put in a more difficult position of debating him. We also need to talk about Joe Biden in this context. If we look at what, how Bernie defined democratic socialism in his speech last week, there are a couple of things here that I think Biden probably supports the right to quality health care. He did not say Medicare for all. He said quality health care. I'm sure Joe Biden is for quality health care. The right, he said, to a secure retirement. That means the Social Security program 
all the Democrats and a lot of Republicans support the Social Security program. I think the radical one in Bernie's definition of socialism last week was the right to a decent job that pays a living wage. I'm sure Joe Biden is for a living wage. You know, all Democrats are for a living wage. But the idea that there is a right to a decent job and that the government has a responsibility to guarantee jobs, that is a very left-wing idea. Well, it's as left-wing as Roosevelt, right, in the 1930s. It's a idea that a number of the Democratic candidates have embraced. It's not just Bernie Sanders. Another of them have talked about filling this, this void in America, this gap, where we have a lot of jobs, but we don't necessarily have a lot of good jobs and a lot of jobs that really provide both a living wage and some sort of um, broader set of benefits and, and support. And so this is an open discussion in our times. One of the mistakes that we always make when we have debates about nomination when we're looking at a particular year is that we live in that year, right? And we say, well, the economy is pretty good right now. There's a lot of jobs. What you have to understand is that the history of the United States is one in which we've had periods where there were a lot of jobs and that wages were rising. We've also had periods where there weren't a lot of jobs and periods where wages were really depressed. And, and again, this is more of a democratic socialist model, because if you look at the Scandinavian states, if you look at Germany, uh, other countries that have been influenced in their economic policymaking by democratic socialist visions, they put a lot of planning in. And so they prepare for the moment when you don't have enough jobs, when, when people aren't making a, a sustainable living. And I think that in this period, as we look toward the many challenges of automation, as well as changing the economy to address climate change via a Green New Deal. Uh, this is something all the candidates should be talking about. They can talk in different ways. I'll accept that. But at the end of the day, I think the 21st century is going to come to a place where the government is going to have to have a significant role in, in at least talking about how we make sure that everybody's got a job. Or if not a job, at least an ability to support themselves and sustain themselves in a period of radical economic and social transformation. Let me just add, if our listeners want to read a terrific book about the automation and its implications for our future, I recommend the book People Get Ready by John Nichols. I also recommend that, John. And finally, I want to ask about the Next Left podcast, our sister podcast of the nation. Uh, you interviewed Bernie, but although that interview has its transcript posted at thenation.com, the interview itself is not on the Next Left podcast this week. Why not? Next Left has very strict rules, John. We do not interview candidates for president because we're talking about the Next Left. We're talking about you know rising new political figures at the national, state, local levels. In fact, just the other day, I interviewed a judge in Houston, Texas. And so we want to introduce people to folks they may not have always heard about rather than you know looking at horse race, so to speak. And so that's that's it. We got a no presidential candidates rule. And who then is on the Next Left podcast this week? It's Sarah Inamorato. She is a state representative in Pennsylvania. And I, I really recommend people check it out because she's a remarkable figure. She's somebody, a young woman in her area where she grew up around Pittsburgh, had, been, had never voted in an election where this one guy hadn't been on the ballot as the candidate for state representative. And he rarely had opponents. 
she decided to challenge him in the Democratic primary. It seemed like an incredibly insurmountable race. What she did was quite remarkable. She went to the doors. She and her supporters did thousands of doors. And personally, she really opened up about herself. She told her own story, her family struggles economically and her dad struggling with addictions and shared a lot of herself in order to get people talking about their own experience. Remarkably, she came away from those doors with a, an understanding of the issues that really were scaring people, that really were concerning people. Things like asthma and, you know, an area with a lot of pollution, the rise in the amount of asthma. And so imagine this. She challenged an entrenched incumbent. Instead of using the usual consultant talking points with ads and, and literature in that, that talked about the rise in asthma, that talked about the opioid crisis, that talked about all sorts of other issues, and put responses to them in the context of a democratic socialist vision. Uh, and she won. She's now serving in the legislature. So she's got quite a tale to tell. You can listen to John Nichols' interview with Sarah Inamorato on the Next Left podcast. And you can read John Nichols' interview with Bernie Sanders at thenation.com. John, thanks for talking with us. Always great to have you on the show. Total pleasure to be with you, my friend. One of the great progressive victories last November, along with the midterm election of a new Congress, was the vote in Florida to restore voting rights to people who had been convicted of felonies and served their sentences. Felon enfranchisement, we called it. And we also called it one of the great victories for voting rights in decades. 1.4 million people were going to get back their right to vote. But the news from Florida since then has not been so good. And for that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. Sasha writes regularly for The Nation and also The American Prospect and The Atlantic. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. And he also hosts The Abramsky Report, Online at theabramskyreport.com, no spaces. Sasha, welcome back. John, thanks for having me on. Well, you covered the Florida felon reenfranchisement campaign for the nation and for our podcast last fall. Remind us what it took to win that fight. Well, I did cover it for the nation. Um, I actually have been writing about it for 20 years at this point. And it's one of those things where you write about something so often and it's such an injustice. And eventually you think, well, this is one of those injustices that we're just stuck with. And then last November, Florida voters actually decided that they had had enough of permanent disenfranchisement. And I think I should explain a little bit about what we're talking about here. Yeah. Because it's, it's kind of complicated. Most states disenfranchise people while they're in prison or parole. There are a couple of states that don't. But most states say if you've been convicted of a felony offense, and you go to prison, or even if you don't go to prison, you're serving a sentence in the community, that while you're serving that sentence, you don't have full civil rights. Now, a bunch of southern states mainly have taken that a step further, and they had these Jim Crow laws dating back to the late 19th century that basically were looking for ways to disenfranchise African Americans and poor whites. And they came up with this set of guidelines that basically said, you commit a felony, you go to prison, you go to jail, you never vote again. And because we're in an era of mass incarceration where so many people are getting felony convictions, 
the numbers add up. And so what you found in Florida was by 2000, that election when just a handful of votes separated George Bush and Al Gore, in 2000, there were three quarters of a million people in Florida who couldn't vote. And if you fast forward to 2018, there were 1.4 million. Imagine that in a state of Florida, over 10% of adult potential voters have been taken off the voter rolls because at some point in their life, they were convicted of something, even if it wasn't something serious. So Florida voters said, we've had enough of this. And there was this huge campaign, it mobilized thousands of people around the state. And interestingly, it created coalitions between very progressive groups and very conservative groups. So you had the Christian coalition, you had Americans for Prosperity, you had all these conservative groups who came on board and supported reenfranchisement. And so you're right, it passed in November and there was this huge sort of collective sigh of relief that finally an injustice was being righted. And now the Republicans in the State House are trying to sabotage it. The reenfranchisement of ex-felons is the law in Florida. How can the Republicans get around this now? They, they, they can't. They can't say we're going to completely ignore Amendment 4. What they said is it needs to be clarified. So Amendment 4 basically said if you've completed your sentence, you can vote. And what the Republicans in the State House said was, well, what do we mean by completion of sentence? Well, obviously, you can't be in prison anymore. Obviously, you can't be on parole. But what about fines? Because most people, when they get a felony conviction, they pick up a series of fines. They pick up a series of damages. Um, they have to pay court costs. There are certain things that they have to pay, which can run to many thousands of dollars. And so historically, the fines are part of the sentence unless a judge says, you know what, we're going to move this out of the criminal area and we're going to consider those financial penalties civil liens and we're going to work out a monthly payment. And as soon as a judge says that, historically, that's no longer been part of the sentence. So now what the Republicans have said is, well, we're going to clarify Amendment 4 to say that you have to pay off all of your civil liens in order to vote. Now, if you're a poor person, you've come out of prison, you're working a minimum wage job, if you're lucky, because there's huge unemployment amongst the ex-prisoner population, you may be able to scrape together, if you're good at scraping money together, 100 or $200 a month to pay off your civil lien. What you're going to be unable to do is pay thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands all at once. And so they found a way of doing an end run around Amendment 4, which basically says if you owe anything, you remain disenfranchised. And there are varying estimates. Nobody's got an exact number. But the estimates that I heard when I was doing the reporting is what that means is it reduces the numbers from 1.4 million who can reapply to vote down to about 800,000. So it almost halves it. Uh, that's estimates, though, because nobody really knows. So in order to get the right to vote back, you have to pay the state or you have to pay your restitution. Isn't this a new kind of poll tax you have to pay to vote? Isn't that unconstitutional? Well, they're going to be legal challenges. And when I was doing the interviews, the ACLU and the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and the League of Women Voters all indicated that if this goes into effect, and it hasn't been signed yet, DeSantis has not signed this bill into law, but he's given indication he probably will. If it goes into effect, there'll be a rash of legal suits because you're exactly right. What it does is it puts a financial penalty onto people making it harder for poor people in particular to vote. And I spoke to lots of people. I was driving around the, the state. I went to Miami, I went to Fort Myers, went to St. Petersburg, and I was interviewing people. And some of the people I interviewed were facing exactly that. They, they'd done their sentence. They were law-abiding citizens. They had jobs. They were paying taxes. 
but they had civil liens outstanding. And they had payment plans. They, I spoke to a, one woman who had a monthly payment plan. She was completely in compliance with that plan. She thought she was going to get her right to vote back after Amendment 4. Now it's not going to happen. And the heartbreak in that woman's story, because this isn't just sort of a pragmatic thing, for many, many returning citizens coming back from the prison system, this is a defining element of their humanity. And I, I spoke to one woman. She said, I'm damned if I'm going to accept that I have less rights than anybody else. And that's how it's felt, that if you can't vote in the most visceral way possible, you're being told by the state that you live in that you're a subclass of citizen, that you're not fully a citizen. And so this has a huge emotional impact on the lives of these individuals. They're trying to make good. They're trying to do what they've been told they have to do and return and integrate into the community and become law-abiding. And now they're being told it doesn't matter what you do, for years, maybe decades, you're still not going to be able to vote. And that was never the intent of Amendment 4. The whole point of Amendment 4 was give these people a second chance. That was how it was phrased, and that was how voters were voting when they voted in November. One more thing before we let you go. You recently launched the Abramsky Report online at theabramskyreport.com. What is it? Well, it's a column, and I write lots of articles, and I write lots of reported pieces and columns for publications all over the country, including, of course, The Nation. But at the same time, there are many thoughts that I have about the historical moment we're in, the philosophical issues that the Trump era raises, the um, historical parallels that the Trump era raises to mid-century authoritarian regimes and so on, that I want sort of a sort of freedom to explore on my own terms. So I wrote, set up this column. It's called theabramskyreport.com, and it's a subscription column. And basically, you can access a once-a-week political column that I write on immigration issues, on issues around distribution of power, distribution of rights on the way that the Trump administration is breaking down constitutional norms. Um, and these are the, the columns where I really go out there exploring what I think Trump means for this country, its politics and its culture and so on. And I'm having fun with it. I write once a week. I put up a column on Friday mornings. My subscribers get their columns and we get into the comments conversation about it over the weekend. So I hope that listeners out there will check it out. Sasha Abramsky, you can read his report on the new fight over restoring voting rights to felons in Florida at thenation.com. And you can check out the Abramsky Report online at theabramskyreport.com. Thank you, Sasha. My pleasure. Thanks again. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access 
To all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month, you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.